0: Amen. Love for you to take your Bible out, turn to the book of First Corinthians in the New Testament. First Corinthians, we will be in verses 10 through 25. If you're new with us uh, today, once again, thanks for being here. Uh, we uh, would love for you to follow along with us in your Bible if you brought one and if you did not bring one. We do have Bibles in the seats, underneath the seats in front of you, a few every row, and we would love for you to take one of those out and follow along. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, take that with you. They're pretty new, and we would love for you to have that as a gift from us. First Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse 10. There's another epistle letter that Paul wrote to the book uh, to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six, he says, there, "There's one body, in one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Boy, that would be a great church to be a part of where everyone was one spirit and one spirit and one hope and following one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father over all who was through all and in all. Over the last few moments, listening to everyone worship the Lord in song, it felt like that. One, one in the spirit and one faith. But we all know that division has always been a problem. It's been a problem outside of the church, and it's a problem among God's people. And almost every New Testament letter, book you may call it, deals with this topic and mentions it in one way or another. Even the 12 apostles did not always get along with each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul talks about these divisions and asks his readers really to think of three important questions. And these questions are the key to the long paragraph that we're going to be looking at right now. So let's just look at the first few verses, verses 10 through 13, first part of verse 13. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of, a, I am of Paul, I of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now in verse 13 there, the verb, that, that idea of being divided, has Christ been divided, different parts handed out to different people, that's meant to be grotesque. That's meant, To be the idea of taking the literal body of Christ and splitting it apart and saying, you have the leg, you have the arm, you have this. It's meant to be, this is yucky. And it's meant to be rejected. See, Paul did not preach one Christ and Apollos, another Christ, and Peter, another Christ, There is one Savior, there is one gospel, and then how then did the Corinthians create a four-way division? How then, when you look at churches across the world, how then are they so divided? Growing up, I noticed that more than likely, the longer the name of a church, the more divisions it had. Why these quarrels? Why are these contentions? Well, one answer is that they were looking at the gospel from a philosophical point of view. Corinth was a city full of teachers, philosophers, all of whom wanted to share their wisdom. Another answer is human nature in itself enjoys following human leaders. We tend to identify more with spiritual leaders who help us and whose ministry we understand and enjoy. Instead of emphasizing the message of the word, the Corinthians emphasized the messenger. They got their eyes off the Lord and onto the Lord's chosen servants, and it led to competition. And Paul's going to point out later in this later letter that there could be no competition. We're not, we're not competing. It is sinful for us as church goers to really compare biblical pastors. You catch what I'm saying there? Comparing pastors that are teaching the Bible or for believers to to follow human leaders as disciples of men and not disciples of Jesus Christ there's you've maybe heard this term before personality cults in churches today and you know I follow just like what we see here I follow so and so and I follow this person and I follow that person and I only listen to the teaching of Scott Julian and that's really bad Got their eyes off the Lord. And they're looking at people. You see, only Jesus should have that place of preeminence in our lives. I look at Jesus, I look at his word. And Paul uses some key words in this section to emphasize the unity of the saints that needs to be unified in Jesus. He calls his readers brothers, brothers, sisters, reminding them that they are all one family. The, the phrase there, you're made complete, perfectly joined together in some of the versions, that it's a medical term and it describes the unity of the human body knit together loving union of members of the body, they were also identified then ultimately by what? The name Jesus Christ. There's a reference to the baptism there. That's important, and we'll explain that in a few moments. Why, why do we know this was going on? This is an interesting side note. It's there for a reason. the house of chloe there's people that are like hey hey paul we we got a problem we've got a problem we don't know who they were we don't know anything about the house of chloe except mentioned there but actually we should be thankful for them We should be thankful for them, for their courage and devotion. They didn't try to hide the problems. They were burdened about the problems. They went to the right person with the problem. They weren't afraid even to be mentioned by Paul. They didn't fill out a little comment card and didn't sign it. This is the house of Chloe. We need help. It wasn't kind of a cloak and dagger type of thing that you see in the office sometimes where people kind of go underneath and do a, a, a bomb that, you know, that they don't know what who said what, but they, they released it and they wanted to get the things going and the problems going. No, they didn't do any of that. They, they did the right thing and they went to the person who God had placed in leadership in that church, and Paul was the minister who founded that church, and most of the members would have been converted through his ministry. We know that uh, Apollos followed Paul and had an effective ministry. We don't have any record that Peter was ever in Corinth, but we know that obviously some people that were in some of the places that Peter was at or obviously there, and each of these men had a different personality, different approach to the ministry of God's Word, but they were one. They were one. I think of even in our little context here at West Hills Church, when myself or, or Daniel or, or Zach or, or any other person that we have share from God's word, it's, it's fun to hear the different personalities, isn't it? The, the different nuances to, to how people think and, and what they share as their um, illustrations and, and different things like that. But all of it's done to exalt Christ and, and not us. They were one. And, and, and Paul's going, hey, hey, guys, gals, you were not baptized in my name. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and, and Gainus so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of St- Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I love this. I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in w- wisdom of word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. So keep in mind, this baptism thing's kind of big. It's an important matter in the New Testament church. When someone trusted Christ, when a sinner And we explained once again last week what sin is, anything that I think, say, or do that breaks God's law and and makes him sad. That's sin. It's that simple. Well, when a sinner says, I obviously need Christ to be made whole again, to be made new, to be in union, to be one with God, they were baptized. They went underwater as a symbol of being buried in Christ, buried in their sins. Coming out of that water is symbolic of being cleansed, raised to walk a new life in Christ. Now, even more than that, we need to understand, because I think this is happening again, When a believer did that, in that time frame, it was a death sentence for parts of their family. That person, effectively, in those cultures, was cutting themselves off, cutting themselves off from the old life. They were often rejected by family and friends. Man, it costs something for someone to be baptized then. You go around to many parts of the world today. If you are in a Muslim country and you decide to be baptized, the rest of your family is Muslim, what have you done? You've cut yourself off from the family. If not, potentially being sought after to be killed. We have people from various backgrounds like that. True? True? And I believe it's becoming that way even here in the United States again. When you say yes to Christ and you live for Him, people are losing jobs. People are are, are losing jobs in in the settings like paul was in here in corinth which was full of philosophical wisdom schools of thought and that's what we have here we have people that think they're the brightest things on the planet sharing all types of stuff and we're going to get to that in a few moments but what happens you believe in jesus man you are stupid how could you believe in fairy tales? How you, you see how it goes? It costs something for them to be baptized. And honestly, everyone, I think today, if you seriously say yes to Jesus in our culture, it's going to cost you something now. So I'm very real with people on that. Probably 50 years ago, many workplaces rejoiced in having believers as employees. Because they kind of understood, I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm getting. I know what type of morals I'm getting. I know all of that. Now, they tell you, oh, you can't say that. You can't believe that. Get out of here. See how it changes? It costs you something. But... See, I identify with Jesus, not man. When I say yes to following him, I identify with him. See, Jesus didn't baptize people. Peter, Paul allowed their associates to baptize people. Until the church grew in Corinth, probably we see Paul did a little bit of baptism, but that wasn't his main thing. He's putting it in perspective. Now, this is not about identifying with people. This is about identifying with Jesus. And if you identify your baptism with certain people, you cause division. And I've seen it personally. It's kind of interesting to me. I hear people say, well, I was baptized by a certain preacher. I was baptized using Jordan River water that was poured in to the baptistry. Uh, I was baptized on a special day, and my day is more special than your day. And it's like, all right. Isn't this really supposed to just be about honoring Jesus? Promoting the unity of the church? What I love is how Paul says there, you know, I don't quite remember who all I baptized. He didn't have a notebook with a list of baptism names. It was just sufficient that they were written in God's book. So we see that the divisions are, are starting there. They're in there. And, you know, he's like, you know, I wasn't crucified for you either. Was I crucified for you? In verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 17 mentions the cross and introduces in this section the power of the gospel versus the weakness of man's wisdom. It's interesting to see how Paul approached the problem of the division in the church. He first points to unity in Christ, so he first paints a picture. Supposed to be unified in Christ. One Savior, one body. Reminds them of their baptism. You're one in Him. A picture of the baptism of being part of Christ's body. Then He takes them to the cross. Crucifixion was not just a horrible death, everyone. It was shameful. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Crucifixion was never mentioned in society any more than we would discuss over dinner, the electric chair today. And we keep seeing this word in these verses here, this word wisdom, used eight different times. And the key idea that Paul's expressing here is that we do not mix man's wisdom with God's revealed message. And I think that's very important for everyone in here to hear that again. Paul saying, do not dare to mix man's wisdom with God's revealed message. It doesn't work. This entire section on wisdom presents contrast between the word of God and the wisdom of men. One of the most disheartening things for me is when I listen to other people that get up and share in front of churches how they will quote psychology book after psychology book, man's wisdom, and then try to wedge a little bit of Christianity into man's wisdom. And Paul's saying, in that culture, which is what people were doing. He's like, don't do that. It doesn't work. You see, as Christians, we acknowledge that true wisdom comes from God, that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that wisdom. To trust in Christ, yield to the Holy Spirit, is to walk in wisdom. As Christians, it says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ. The promise of wisdom is that those who desire God's truth can have it, but it requires giving up the world's foolish mockery of the truth. That's why it says in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but the fool despises the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. To have the fear of the Lord is to have a respect, an an odd respect of who God is, uh, reverential trust in his word, his character, and to live according to that. When I am walking, just kind of picture this, when I am walking in the odd respect and trust of God, when I have that fear of the Lord, I will be relying on God's wisdom In every matter of everyday life. If you want to know how this applies, I trust God's wisdom for every matter of everyday life. And then I make whatever changes need to be made in light of God's word. Not in light of man's wisdom. Those who have God's wisdom will show it in how they live. James says in James 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Where does Paul say wisdom comes from? The Lord. God's wisdom is revealed primarily, and this is where he's going, everyone. Catch this. God's wisdom is revealed primarily in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the world says, poo-poo. Maybe something different now. And there's these different attitudes towards the cross. There's really three attitudes, Paul. Paul says that some stumble at the cross. The Jewish people did. The emphasis for the Jewish people in verse 23 there is on miraculous signs, and the cross appears to be weakness. He died. Jewish history is full of miraculous events, isn't it? Exodus out of Egypt, the days of Elijah and Elisha. And when Jesus was ministering on earth, the Jewish leaders repeatedly asked him to perform a sign from heaven. Signs and wonders, signs and wonders. But he refused that. The Jewish nation did not understand their own sacred scriptures. They looked for a Messiah that would come in as a mighty conqueror, defeat all of the enemies. He would then set up his kingdom, return the the glory to Israel? And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the apostles asked that question, showing how strong that hope was amongst even themselves. At the same time, their scribes knew in the Old Testament the Messiah would have to suffer and die. I mean, you had Psalm 22, you had Isaiah 53 pointed towards a different kind of Messiah, and the scholars had a really hard time reconciling these two contradictory types of Messiahs. And so they picked one. I mean, we're going to pick the, the conqueror, the king. Isaiah 53, Whatever. They did not understand that the Messiah had to suffer and die before he could enter into his glory, as it says in Luke 24. The Jewish people were looking for power and great glory. They stumbled at the weakness of the cross. How could anyone put faith in an unemployed carpenter from Nazareth who died a shameful death of a common criminal? But what does Romans 1.16 say? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. It's not a testimony of weakness. The cross is an instrument of power. Because as it says there in verse 25, the weakness of God in the cross is stronger than men. See, some also laughed at the cross. We see that in the second part of verse 23 there. It was the response of the Greeks. To them, the cross was just dumb. The Greeks emphasized wisdom, study profound writings of Greek philosophers. We still study those same writings? They saw no wisdom in the cross. They looked at the cross from a human point of view, Had they seen it from God's point of view, they would have discerned the wisdom of God's great plan of salvation. Paul called on three men in this section here to bear witness, the wise, who's the expert, the scribe, who's the interpreter or writer, and the debater, the philosopher. And he asked them a question. Though Through all of your studies into man's wisdom, have you come to know God in a personal way? wonder what would happen if you would ask one of those AI things. Have you come to know God in a personal way? And it would flip out. And the answer is no. There's no way you can. The fact that they laughed at the cross and considered it foolishness as evidence that, that their mind, they were perishing. Paul quoted Isaiah 29, there in verse 19, proving that God had, had written, just picture this. You know, I've gotten some of these back in papers I wrote in college. I don't know if you ever did, where you, you got a less than stellar response on the paper and it was in red and you're like oh bummer remember one time i got a response on a paper that simply said scott you're better than this <laughs> i wrote him back i'm not well god had written a a, a reply back to the greek philosophers And it was a big zero, it was a big F for failure. Your wisdom fails. And in his address on Mars Hill, Paul dares to tell the philosophers that Greek and Roman history were times of ignorance. He's not saying that they didn't know anything, but he's saying that, that what you know is wrong. Yeah, you've made some achievements. You've built great things. But the wisdom did not enable them to find God. Experience salvation. It's it's interesting to me today because many of the very popular people that are online and lead tech companies and people follow all over the place are on a search for wisdom and truth and it mirrors the second part of this verse. They just go, the, the 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 cross can't be it. That doesn't make sense. It's it's foolish. And it's sad. Then there's the third type, verse twenty four. Some people believe. You catch that? Some people believe and experience the power and the wisdom of the cross. I find it interesting that Paul did not alter his message when he turned from a Jewish audience to a Greek one. He preached Christ crucified, the foolishness of preaching, he says. And that doesn't mean that preaching's foolish, but rather the content of the message seems to be foolish to some. Those who've been called by great God's grace, though, and those that have responded by faith realize that Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Now, and this is important because there's people that think Jesus is an incredible person, incredible leader. There are people that are not Christians that will write books about Jesus and talk about his leadership skills. But the thing that we need to understand about Jesus is Jesus is not the Christ of the manger. He's not the Christ of the temple. He's not the Christ of the marketplace. He is the Christ of the cross. It is the death of Christ that God has revealed the foolishness of man's wisdom and the weaknesses of man's power. No matter how many AI things you write, no no matter how many different philosophies you try to follow, no no matter how many things you try to do with your body to create the miracle of never, ever dying, guess what? It doesn't work. 100% doesn't work. The weakness of man's power. And there's a ton of applications in this. One, I think if anyone is in here today and they look at this and they've been kind of walking along with us maybe, or maybe been online and you've been listening to some other sermons and you happen to be in here for the first time today, maybe God's moved something in your heart, even in these simple phrases, and you're like, he didn't really explain everything, but yeah, there's something that I've been missing, because man's wisdom hasn't worked for me. It won't, by the way. Maybe God has moved something in your heart today and the radar is up and you actually are beginning to see the cross as needed. Because no matter what you have tried to do, it has fallen short. It does not cross the the infinite gap between man and God that sin created. The cross is the only thing that covers that gap. It is the only thing that bridges the gap. That's how salvation happens. You call on the name of the Lord. You save, you get saved by simply admitting in your heart, Jesus, save me from my sins. You're the only one that can. I trust in you. However you say that, however you go through that, you will be saved. Because as it says in Scripture, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's wisdom. And as a Christian, if you're in here, the cross is still the power of salvation as well. Be confident that God is going to vindicate the cross at the end of time. You are not on the wrong side of things. When your family mocks you, because you do not believe in some of the crazy stuff that goes on in the world today as being right or being true. When your family throws rocks at you and says, you are wrong, stand tall and trust in God. The mockery of the world will fade like the crackling of a dying fire. Fool's laughter is like the crackling thorns in a fire. Eventually, the fool dies out, and Christ remains. The wisdom of Christ at the cross, the power of God in the cross will be vindicated on judgment day. Don't be intimidated, everyone, by the shrewd, the clever, the funny, the talk show host, the the Twitter expert, the whatever it is, professors that mock Jesus and the faith. It can't be mocked. Also, see the wisdom of God. See the wisdom of God and the humbling pride of the cross. And you know what you need to be doing today? You need to be more humble today than you were yesterday. You need to be thinking in your mind things like this. I'm not done being humbled yet. I don't know where you guys land on things going on in your life, but I can tell you from my point of view, I can't believe sometimes how strong my pride gets. And the cross needs to keep slaying my pride. And I bet yours too. Be humbled by the cross. Trust in the power of God to finish the good work in you. The cross isn't done with you yet. Isn't that good news? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. By calling you out of darkness into light, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Be confident of that. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, out of Christ's hand. We also need to be speaking the message of Christ and him crucified, just like Paul was here. Even though people are set against it, don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Don't be uh, afraid of being mocked. They may become angry with you. More than likely, they're just going to become indifferent. That's good for you. I've got my own thing. Persevere through all of that. Speak the message of the cross this week to people. Let's trust in it. Don't be ashamed. And as Christians, as a reminder, as we zero all the way back to the beginning here, we belong to one family. We are made complete in the unity of the human body. Picture there, knit together. We have this loving union of members of the body. We are identified by the name of Jesus Christ. And we live that out by the wisdom of God in us. We we acknowledge that true wisdom comes from God and that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that wisdom we trust in Christ and we yield to his Holy Spirit and we walk in his wisdom and as Christians we keep repeating to ourselves what it says there in first Corinthians 2 verse 16 I have the mind of Christ that's powerful stuff I have the mind of Christ. How? The Holy Spirit is in me. And thus I can live a different life. I can speak the message of Christ. I can trust in the power of God. I can see the wisdom of God and be humbled from my pride. I can also then let the movement of the Spirit in my heart change my life. And I can live in His wisdom In his wisdom.